0: East Lansing Crime Warp, a podcast hosted by myself, Hannah Brock, and my co-host, Maddie Monroe. Each week, we'll update you on current crime, and then we'll take you back to a crime blast from the past. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned.
1: This week, we're covering the 1970 kidnapping of a former Lansing mayor's daughter, but before that, we have a few crime-related updates. So Governor Whitmer was allegedly almost kidnapped. What can you tell us about that?
0: Well, the first thing I can tell you is I definitely didn't expect to report on that last Thursday. This is a pretty crazy story that really intrigued me from the start, and I think it intrigued people nationally. Um, So seven people were charged by the Attorney General's Office for domestic terrorism in Michigan, and then an additional six were charged for conspiring to kidnap Whitmer, They had been training, surveying her vacation home, making plans. Um, honestly, just a pretty crazy story. So in total, 19 state felony charges were filed by attorney general Nessel. And these people were from across the state of Michigan. Like I would not be surprised if we found people at Michigan state who knew these people. They were in so many counties, counties, names that I recognized growing up. And then um, there was a lot of commentary, obviously, after it happened. So a lot of people were uncomfortable with the terminology militia group. Instead, they preferred that they be called domestic terrorists. Um, This was actually something Governor Whitmer herself said. So that was one of the interesting points that was involved in kind of the response to the incident. And I know that you covered Mm -hmm. um, Governor Whitmer's response, her first statements. What what did she say in that?
1: Yeah, so Governor Whitmer went live via Facebook um, on Friday just to kind of talk about the allegations. Basically, in summary, um, the governor wanted to discuss the fact that she was um, really shocked by what had come out. And she also really highlighted in the speech that she gave, um, to continue taking safety measures seriously, which was kind of part of why the kidnapping plan originally happened. Right, and
0: that was kind of where the whole plot stemmed from. These people were mad at governors who they believed had violated the U.S. Constitution, so that was kind of the like the backing in their reasoning, their motive, I guess I would call it, Um to starting this plan. Um, And the people that were charged in Michigan were not only trying to go after Governor Whitmer, they were also trying to identify the home addresses of law enforcement officers to target them. And they had threatened to start a civil war. So, pretty crazy story overall. Um, Not what I expected to
1: cover last week whatsoever. Um, I was shaking in my boots. Definitely. It was, it was one of those stories that you read the headline and it sounded like it shouldn't be real. Right. But it is real. Right. So the Police Oversight Study Committee met for the first time this week. What happened at that meeting? Well, the first thing I want to say is that the Police
0: Oversight Study Committee has a pretty um, confusing name, I would say. They're not an oversight committee yet. They're making recommendations to the East Lansing City Council in order to form a police oversight committee in the future. So that's kind of um, something that honestly was initially unclear to me. So that's something I also want to communicate. Um, But the meeting was held on Monday at 6 p.m. And they elected their chair and their vice chair. So the chairperson is Chuck Grigsby. He is also the chairperson for the Human... Relations Commission in East Lansing Um, and the vice chair is Tanya Williams and Tanya Williams hasn't been a chairperson before but she expressed to me and I expressed this in my article that she was really excited to kind of figure out that position and get started with it. Um, The meeting was the very first so there was a lot of discussion a lot of brainstorming and basically what was determined is that they would like for the city staff to show them what data ELPD has related to police oversight and to kind of like analyze that and make it communicable so they can understand it a little bit better and see how that can be applied to the recommendation. And then they're also looking at um, other police oversight commissions in kind of similar settings as East Lansing and how those could be used to kind of create our own here. Alright, thank you for listening to this week's Crime Updates. Now
1: it's time for the Crime Blast from the Past. In July of 1970, a former Lansing mayor's daughter was abducted in broad daylight at Gallagher's Gifts and Antiques. The store used to be located where the patio of East Lansing restaurant El Esteco now resides. At this time, this was the largest FBI manhunt ever conducted lori Merningham was the daughter of maxwell Merningham, who served as lansing mayor from 1965 to 1969. her kidnapping received national attention with the media dubbing her as the former mayor's pretty blonde or attractive blonde daughter at the time of her abduction she was 16 and a junior at sexton high school
0: okay and that was weird this girl is 16 so a minor So why are we commenting on her appearance? Right. Like, let's just look for her.
1: Right. There were multiple articles from the Detroit News, the Flint Journal, um, the Jackson Citizen Patriot, and a couple more calling her pretty and attractive and overall just odd to me. I don't know if this was common for this time. Um, I mean, this case is from the 1970s. But I found it odd that they continued to describe her as pretty and attractive when I didn't think that was really necessary. No, it's not really
0: appropriate. I can't imagine a time in an article about anything where I would be like handsome right. or attractive so-and-so. And I mean, our editors would be like, Hannah, are you crazy? Back to the story. Lori had just returned from a 4th of July vacation with her family. During her first shift back, the antique store was robbed by a man who entered and asked her if she had changed for a $20 bill. The man then began struggling with 55-year-old Mrs. Christine Gallagher, the store's owner, and struck her on the head with his gun. The gun went off into the ceiling and Mrs. Gallagher fell to the floor where she remained unconscious. Out of fear that he had killed her, he kidnapped the only witness, Lori. Lori. He stole $64 in the process. The money stolen amounts to about $430 in today's purchasing power. After Lori was abducted from the store, Mrs. Gallagher regained consciousness and reported the incident to the police with a full description of the man. She then went into seclusion for several days.
1: Descriptions by the media of the robber varied in terms of what kind of clothes he wore and his facial hair. However, he was believed to be carrying a small gun and drove a blue vehicle. Initially, police suspected Ronald Lee Garrison, who had robbed and murdered a restaurant owner in Toledo, Ohio. However, police were not quick to lock in on Garrison because he didn't quite fit the witness's description. The following day, the former mayor appeared on the news to beg for his daughter's safe return, as well as a $5,000 reward.
0: So like we've mentioned
1: before, this received
0: national attention and this put a lot of pressure on the local police. They vehemently searched for Lori and spread the news of her abduction, leading to several leads. However, this is kind of interesting. A man called Lansing Police Department, demanding $500 but agreed to $200 for information about Lori. A 41-year-old man and three teenagers retrieved the money from a park where it was left by LPD, but supplied no information. They were arrested for extorting money. The FBI became involved one day after the kidnapping. According to the Detroit News, the FBI is permitted to become involved after 24 hours due to the possibility of interstate flight.
1: The former mayor maintained a 24-hour vigil at the police communication center. He said, I often lived in this room during emergencies when I was mayor. I never dreamed I'd someday be doing it for myself. Community members gathered in support of Lori, such as one local resident named Ernie Boone, who offered to communicate with the kidnapper through code for $5,000. Another $5,000 was donated anonymously to be used for ransom money. The priest it was given to said the donor was a man who said he and his sons worked all summer doing odd jobs for the money. The man and his son hoped to spread love to encourage the kidnapper to return Lori safely. And there's something interesting that I wanted to add. Um, In one article I
0: read that they weren't super keen on saying it was for ransom money but they had clearly stated that they would give it to the kidnapper if he would just return Lori or at least tell them where she she was at or where she was being held captive. Um, I thought that was really interesting that they were willing to give it to the kidnapper. I think that shows how much people wanted Lori back.
1: Yeah there's a lot of evidence throughout the research that we did that the community kind of gathered a big support in, for Lori. Yeah, I'm guessing
0: maybe it's because she was a high school student. Right. I mean, I feel like it'd be really easy for parents to see their own children in Lori and kind of panic in that way. Um, I think it's kind of interesting how it contrasts from the last podcast we did about Sandra Clark. There wasn't a whole lot about what the community said, what the community did, um, what the university's response was. I mean, that was a university-related kind of thing. Um, Yeah, it's just a really stark contrast. I mean, there's a decent age difference, but I mean, there's still two young women and I'm kind of confused about the disparity between the two. In the weeks following Lori's abduction, the Chicago Police Department determined another suspect who was arrested during a traffic stop. Local police did not believe he was actually involved with Lori's case. It was later revealed his fingerprints and appearance did not match those of the kidnapper. Five days after her abduction, hopes for her return remained high. The former mayor held to the belief that she was still alive. Lori was described as someone who was not likely to panic under stress, such as jumping from a moving vehicle. Her mother said she would wait for an opportune time to escape. Lansing police had logged hundreds of tips, which included reports about suspects and alleged sightings of Lori, most generated from Detroit in the Midwest, though some came. as far as Canada. During this time, the former mayor, his wife, and Lori's three
1: other siblings remained at the police station waiting for word. As Lori's missing status neared a week, a total of $16,500 was offered for her safe release. Her father announced this money could be given to the abductor himself to use for his family or legal fees. Lansing clergymen also encouraged the kidnapper to come to any church or synagogue and pledged not to testify against him. In 2020, $16,500 would equal about $110,000 today. At this time, police were reported as becoming desperate. They had encouraged locals to search their property, abandoned buildings, and empty vacation homes for any sign of Lori.
0: About a week and a half after Lori was kidnapped, stores began displaying signs that said, Please help find Lori. Her father also said support and sympathy was pouring in from across the country. At this time, police had few promising tips. They said they didn't understand how no one saw her being abducted in the middle of the day. One article read, quote, you can see how Lori could have been kidnapped in broad daylight without a reliable witness. Although this is a busy neighborhood, the gift shop sits in an obscure pocket. According to the same article, surrounding businesses were either blinded by the building setup or had no windows facing the area. By 11 days, police had received over 1,000 tips with no clues to Lori's
1: whereabouts. Later on that 11th day, three children were searching for pop cans when they found Lori's body. Her body was about 15 feet from a road 20 miles south of Lansing in the grassy area near a dark swamp surrounded by woods. The police refused to detail Lori's autopsy. They explained this was so the killer could be trapped by unknown facts during interrogation. Lori's identity was determined through dental verification. The outfit she was wearing when she was abducted was stacked next to her body, but the autopsy could not determine how she died, but confirmed she had not been sexually assaulted. Lansing churches rang their bells in memorial of Lori, 13 days after her abduction. Months later,
0: it was revealed that she had been strangled within 24 hours of her abduction. Another girl, Marie Ann Jackson, had been strangled to death in December. However, the police could not determine any links between the two. Mrs. Gallagher, the store owner, struggled after Lori's abduction. She was bombarded by curious customers and remained the only witness to the kidnapper turned killer. Two years after Lori's death, the shop closed permanently.
1: In December of 1970, Lori's family remained hopeful that her murderer would be caught, but did not want to relive the nightmare during a trial. Several suspects were identified as her killer, including a man in North Dakota, but never resulted in charges in Murningham's case. One suspect was given truth serum, according to a later analysis. The same suspect was charged from a different crime and served time, but died before police and prosecutors could connect him to Lori's murder. Truth serum is typically defined as a drug used to induce the truth, they cause the person to become uninhibited and talkative, however, they do not guarantee that a person will tell the truth. According to the CIA, truth serums are typically a mixture of numerous drugs, including scopolamine along with morphine and chloroform. The combination of these drugs was known to produce sedation, drowsiness, confusion, disorientation, incoordination, and amnesia.
0: Two years after Lori's death, her family had moved to a different home and tried to forget. Lori's father said, quote, one of the factors to move was Lori. It helped us avoid the decision on what to do about her room, end quote. Her belongings were given away, her father said. He hoped the murderer was charged in relation to a different crime, not his daughter's murder. The Murning family had been contacted by parents of murdered children and did not want to experience the same trial nightmares. To this day, Lori's murderer remains unidentified. So a few key points that I want to bring up here. What the heck with the truth serum? That is so not right. You should not drug people. And I know you said there was something interesting about how they would give it to
1: them. Do you want to talk about that? Absolutely. So um, I did a little research on truth serum and it was fairly popular back in this time. Originally, these drugs were used um, during childbirth to make the experience just overall easier for women giving birth. Um, And researchers kind of looked at the effects that caused um, women to experience an easier childbirth and noted that a lot of the times these women were talking about experiences they'd had very truthfully. And so they then decided that that would mean this drug could be used in criminal cases so a lot of times they would drug them slip it into their water or coffee or tea or whatever it was um and you would basically become almost incapacitated it's basically like you're really drunk you don't know really what's going on
0: right so, so how can here's my thing this was actually used as evidence yeah what
1: <laughs> no a lot of the times it was used as evidence and one thing that i found interesting in the cia article was that it wasn't publicized hardly ever if it was used in criminal cases i guess that this
0: this case was so nationally covered and i've never heard of it
1: yeah i had also never heard of it um but i mean we found articles from the new york times From the Miami Herald,
0: a newspaper in New Orleans, um, newspapers in Chicago, Indiana, Texas. Um, yeah, this was widely covered. And I mean, I guess it kind of shows that if you're a member of a political family, people will really pay attention. Um, which is kind of sad because I know some of the other cases, which we will not detail right now, (laughs) um, they don't receive as much attention no. just because of their status.
1: Um, right. And I think it's interesting, too, Maxwell Morninghan wasn't mayor at this point. He finished off his term in 69, and Laurie was taken in the summer of
0: 1970. Right. And there's no mention of if that was related or unrelated. I would think that would be a question that the public would have. Right. Um, Putting myself in this position, covering that story, that would be one of the first things I would wonder. Um, But, yeah, I mean, in some of the stuff we read, it was talking about how it was just senseless that she happened to be there. Right. At the wrong time.
1: Yeah, just wrong place, wrong time kind of a situation.
0: Which is what makes it so scary. Right. Because imagine you're working downtown. Yeah. Someone kidnaps you in broad daylight, middle of the day, 2 p.m. And we know how busy downtown East Lansing can be. Um, maybe not right now with the pandemic, but
1: in past time. And nobody noticed. I can't believe that no one saw her. I, I don't mean, know. I feel like that's something that you would notice. Right. Especially since obviously she's a known person. Mm-hmm. Like people know who she is.
0: Right. Like, they had a million pictures of her. Right. And when I was looking for articles about this um, in newspaper databases, there had been a lot of coverage of the Murningham family. Yeah, Like, people wanted to know about them. I mean, imagine, like, the governor, right. our mayor right now. We know a lot about them. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's just pretty interesting to me. And while we're on that topic of her being kidnapped in the middle of the day... A journalist actually, and I kind of mentioned this when we were telling the story, he went there at the same time of day between 1.30 and 2 and kind of surveyed what the layout of the city was at that time and how busy it was, I guess. And there were people who typically have lunch kind of down in that area. There
1: was a popular restaurant. Um, I mean, I know that they said that the buildings were kind of set up in an odd way and there weren't great windows. um, But I just think it's strange that no one just like walking down the street saw it. It's just so unfortunate that it happened at a
0: time when the only witness was knocked unconscious. Alrighty, so that concludes our second episode of East Lansing Crime Warp. We hope you've enjoyed our last two episodes and we look forward to telling you another crime story in two weeks. Thank you so much.
1: Yep, thank you all for joining us. Stay safe.